Hello, and welcome to Captive Audience. I'm your host, Kelly, and we're back after, um, I guess, I guess like a month, maybe. Um, but some stuff happened. Um, I'm sure we're all sitting in quarantine right now. But uh, I have my friend Aaron here with me, um, and we watched a Star Kid musical, which was really interesting. Erin, um, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, it's me, Erin, again. I like to be on here, I guess. <laughs> so You're on here a lot. Yeah. So I'm still working in an architecture firm. My history is still the same. The first show I ever saw was Phantom of the Opera on Broadway with Kelly and a couple other friends. I have seen a handful of other Star Kids productions, and... I've enjoyed all of them because I, I enjoy the comedic qualities a lot of them have. So it's nice to talk about a slightly less conventional form of theater. Right. I was going to I was going to ask you about that. So let's talk about your your introduction to Star Kid really fast. Okay. So this show is actually not Star Kid as much as we're going to talk a little bit about Star Kid. Um, it's actually about the Tin Can Brothers. Um, which is kind of like, I would say like a little, ex- maybe, I don't want to say it's an extension because I'm not sure the legal, the legal terms of, of what they are, but they have, um, a lot of the members are former Star Kid, or not even former Star Kid members. They're just active with the Tin Can Brothers and Star Kid. Um, the only difference is I think that Star Kid still runs out of Chicago, um, which is where they're from. They went to the University of Michigan. Um, and that's how all the star kids met each other. This theater company runs out of Los Angeles. Okay. And that's why there's like a different name and everything. So I found out about Star Kid literally. Um, I always say it's so funny. I found out the summer before Darren Chris went to Glee. Literally that summer, I watched a Harry Potter musical and then read the announcement that Darren Chris was going to be in Glee. And then screamed. Um, and so that's how I and I and I found Star Kid because I had friends in high school who liked a very Potter musical and they recommended that to me. Um, and at the time, Star Kid was was really good at like releasing like they released all the music for a very Potter musical for free in a zip file. Um, and you could download it and like put it on your computer. And of course, now they um, have people pay for it because they they should pay for it because they put all of their musicals up online, filmed very well for free, um, as does the Tin Can Brothers with this show, which is how we were able to see the show is because they had it in high quality on their YouTube account, which we will be putting in the links, which you can actually go watch this show before you listen to our podcast, because it's about spies, and we're going to spoil the entire thing. So, me and Aaron, Aaron, what is your what is your quick thought on this show? I thought the show was fun. As I said before, um, I'm more familiar with Starkid Productions, but considering that there are similar, I think, general approaches to what Tin Can Brothers and Star Kids do in terms of the fact that they do more so comedic musicals. They lean towards comedy and they also share a couple actors in common between the productions. I've always liked them. I think my first introduction to this sort of theater was listening to Twisted in college with Kelly and I really liked Twisted. 
as well as Trail to Oregon, which is also funny, mm-hmm. among their other works. So I, mm-hmm. I think what I liked about the fact that they are accessible to people is they really are accessible. You can find them online, and it's not like when you have to go to a theater production that costs money and forces you to, or not forces, it requires you to go someplace, spend money, whereas with a lot of their productions from Tin Can Brothers and Star Kids, you don't have to really put time and money into watching their shows. You get you just get to enjoy them from the comfort of your own home. So the this show um, happened to be um, from the Tin Can Brothers, and they presented it the same way. One thing that Star Kid, and I'm not sure if the Tin Can Brothers do, which is very new, is they do digital ticketing, which is you can buy... Um, for like $15, you can buy a ticket to the show and they release a recording for you. Um, and it's, you get it for 48 hours, I think. Um, and what was really cool about that is that it was also, it's also a completely different recording from the one that they're going to release. So they have a free version and then they have a digital ticketing version. And they're kind of basically just hoping that you don't pirate it um, because you're going to get it in literally like four months anyway. So you really shouldn't be, you know, there's no reason to. When you do it for, when people do it on Broadway, they do it because the show is closed and they didn't get to see it, or it's a really popular show and the tickets are really expensive. Yeah. There's no reason to pirate a Star Kid show. I'm sorry. The paywall is small, um, and you don't have to. You don't have to pay for a digital ticket if you don't want to. It's just there if you can, if you can, if you want to give them a little bit of money for the effort that they put in, you know, they're doing this, you know, it is so accessible. Like I cannot state enough is, is this is the first time I've ever seen this format. And it's really important that you kind of stick to it because if you break the rules, then they'll stop doing it. Um, And kind of, they're a great example for people to look at doing into going into digital ticket, ticketing sales. And so I just wanted to, put a little PSA. I know I'm going on a little soapbox with Aaron right now. Uh, it's just Aaron. It's an audience of Aaron for this soapbox. I'm uh, used to it. <laughs> but I, I want to, I really want to stress how important this is that they're doing this for free. And it's important to give them, if you can, if you can give them money, I paid for a digital ticket for their last time they did it because I have not been able to financially support them. And I've literally been watching them for eight years of my life. So I, I next want to talk about the show summary, which is the, so the show is about spies. So it's kind of almost like a big parody and subver- subversion of James Bond are the movies that I like to compare it to because those are like the classic spy movies. There are some allusions to it as well, such as the time period. It takes place in the 60s. Right. So in in a short way, in Quickly, me and Aaron definitely recommend you go see the show. We're going to start to go into the story now, um, and we don't want to spoil it for you. And it's for free, so if you can, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, and we hope that you'll watch it. Um, Give it some love in the comments. Stick to their shows. Pay for some digital tickets. Buy the album. You know, they do this for free essentially they do sell a little bit of tickets like they have real shows where they're based out of LA um and they'll do like two a few months maybe a month I don't think it's that long um like a month of shows and then record them and then release that to the general public 
um, but it's not a big stack of fat stack of tickets, you know, so give them, give them a little bit of, give them a little bit of love. Okay, so now we're going to get into the spoilers. So, good summary that I don't think we ever gave <laughs> for the spoiler warning uh, is it's, a, it's about a down-and-out spy named Kurt Mega, honestly, whose actor's name is also Kurt Mega. I think they thought his name was so cool that they let it be the character's name because it was a cool name, cool spy name. So, Kurt Mega is a down-and-out spy, and he's just lost his partner, Owen, who was um, MI6, I believe, yes. from MI6, and then Kurt was from uh, America. And his partner, Owen, dies, and Kurt has to kind of move on. Um, but It's get- also worth noting that Owen dies by Kurt's own negligence. That's true. He dies because of, he dies because of Kurt's negligence. Um, and arrogance. <laughs> and arrogance. Um, and then Kurt kind of goes through this Russian plot where he meets um, the femme fatale of the show, which subversion he doesn't get together with at the end of the show. And uh, then he he kind of they go through this whole Russian uh, story um, and the Nazis come in. That's an interesting thing we're going to talk about. Um, and then afterward, it is revealed <gasps> twist spoiler warning that. Owen is not dead in spy fashion. He's not dead. Um, and he's actually been um, another character this entire time. And then afterward, for a double twist, it's revealed that that Owen and Kurt have had a romantic relationship, which has maybe ha- had to be hidden because it's the 1960s. And that's a, that's a, that was a really interesting uh, twist. Like, I've never seen that before. Like, I've always seen um, homoerotic villains where they're kind of coded to be gay um, or, or like a lesbian, but they're never explicitly stated. Um, coded uh, is, coded language and coded subtext is basically doing something with your body language to insinuate and your speech to insinuate something like Kurt talks about uh, Owen as a partner a lot and if you can kind of catch that then you get the you get the twist of the story and I really like how that's done he calls him a partner he calls him like a best friend um, he talks about him he grieves him for like an entire song uh, he grieves him actually for several songs um, there was also the fact that this the show opens with Kurt Mega being interrogated and Owen is being a double agent in this in the sense and the only way that they manage to get information from Kurt is because Owen knows deeply personal secrets which is also an allusion to how well they know each other yeah it's a really it's really fun to watch this a second time Aaron was watching it for the first time I was watching it probably for the I this is the the, the the second time that I seriously watched it. I've listened to it a bunch of times, but I haven't sat down and watched it again since the first time I watched it. Um, so I got to sit down and like watch it. And I was trying to like watch my language when I was talking to Aaron. Um, like we'd interject a few times, like when the Nazis came in, I'd explain the Nazis. So I was talking to Aaron, whenever I was talking to Aaron about Owen, I would have to literally like hide what I was saying and I'd have to make sure like there was one time when you were talking about um Joe Walker's accents 
um, that he does. So Joe Walker mm-hmm. plays the deadliest man alive who winds up being Owen in the end. What a twist. And so there was a time when you were talking about Joe, uh, Joe Walker's accents um, and you were like, I don't know what, what, which accent he's doing sometimes because a lot of the star kid or a lot of the characters and the actors play a lot of different roles. And that's actually something that is very key to uh, Tin Can Brothers Star Kid shows is that they have small casts and the characters play multiple people, which is even better for a show like this where everybody is a spy and you don't know who's who and who's going to be who. It makes it really interesting. And you were, so you were commenting on Joe Walker's accent and I was trying not, I didn't want to say he was doing a British accent because I didn't want to spoil the fact that he was Owen and he does an accent because he's actually Owen. Well, I... I knew there was a part of me that knew Owen wasn't really dead. And but and that was the yeah, and that was the twist that I predicted too, is that he wasn't dead. But him being the world's deadliest man, that was not or not the world's deadliest man, the deadliest man alive. Mm-hmm. That was something that I appreciated that little twist because as I did say, the deadliest man alive, I think his accent switched about four or five times. I, it only it only switched it only switched twice. He was he was supposed to be he was supposed to be British. He maybe um, he maybe should have gotten a dialect coach. Um, but at one point was, he kind of sounded like Austin be, Powers. Yeah, he was supposed it was supposed to be British the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it was like different ranges of being British. But um, and then he was he also played the American was his other main role. Oh yeah, that kind of Matthew McConaughey type. Yeah, and so. Um, when we were watching it again, um, Aaron, when did you realize that um, they were coding both Kurt and, well, not Owen because we thought he was dead, but Kurt as gay? Like, when did you kind of see that twist come in? There was, like I said, in the original opening scene, there was the allusion to them knowing each other very personally. So that kind of might have been the first hint. But spoiler, in the scene where him and Tatiana are together, and they try to kiss, and it goes terrible. And he goes, "You're not my type." It's like, ah, yes, I see now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of like words in in kind of like in like queer culture that kind of like you say um, that kind of like alludes to you maybe being gay, and that's mm-hmm. how. And his real utter repulsion at Barbara Lavener as well. Yeah. Because she kept trying to hit on him, and he was just like, "No thanks, I won't miss you." Bye. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was I thought that was really cool. So Owen and Kurt have uh, this romantic kind of like way that they speak to each other. Um, I'll say that like I didn't I didn't see it coming um, like at all. Like I was completely blindsided by it. Honestly, it honestly may have been because I was not paying attention to the heterosexual couple while they were kind of like. Because I still saw it as um, a parody of the spy genre, and it doesn't really become a subversion of it until Kurt rejects Tatiana, Tatiana's advances. And then it starts to, like, kind of, like, you know, once you distance yourself from a trope, then anything can happen. Um, and and then so, but, I, but there's a part where, to me, it was, like, abundantly clear. Um, he refers to Owen as his partner, like, one other time, like, very very intimately like he'll he'll like stumble over his words and he'll just kind of say partner and that was kind of like he only does that like three times or so um and one of the times he does it is is during the um when he's with Tatiana 
and well you said like he, you're not my type um and i actually don't really remember that line i do remember him going she's like who was owen and he's like owen was my partner and it looks like he's actually gonna say i thought he would was gonna say best friend but now that i look at it again it looks like he was gonna say boyfriend because they were kind of in an intimate space and he could kind of say it um there's a really interesting there's a really interesting video that I found that I may or may not make Aaron watch. It depends. She already watched a 40-minute video essay for me about comedy and Nazis. So, yeah. Yeah, but um, so but she watched um, but I watched a video about like the subtext and the context of the time period that they're in, and it talks about like some of the laws that were in place, which was like a real thing in the mm-hmm. 1950s and 60s about spies being gay how it was supposed to stay hidden, which they do allude to at the end when they're, they're confronting each other. There's this part where he says, like, your see, some secrets are not meant to be shared. Um, and he's talking about his relationship, their relationship with each other. And that that was like an interesting line because it kind mm-hmm. of back to the homosexual relationships, quote, quote. Being I, I wonder if that has I, I, I was wondering, as you were mentioning it in terms of all the subtext, I, I, since I mentioned that I sort of picked up on it very early, I wonder if that's just a thing that, depending on the person, how much they can pick up on subtext and how early. And also, since I am a straight person, if there's some part of my ability to pick up on subtext, if that means that, like, just by being heterosexual, heterosexual right. Right. if I somehow pick up on coded behavior that is not geared towards heterosexual behavior earlier than some. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I think it might be just for the listener's sake. I am not straight. Um, and <clears throat> though I think it might be honestly, because me and Aaron are very like intellectual people. Um, case in point, Aaron watched a 40 minute video, video uh, on Mel Brooks and like the comedy of Mel Brooks, which we'll, we will put in the video link, um, which I also. Very good. Watched. I recommend it. It's, She's great when she wants to be great, and then sometimes she's mean to rent for no reason. Uh, okay, that gets cut out. But <laughs> no, that's staying in. Um, okay. So, so me and so me and Aaron kind of like we talk a lot about this stuff. Like I've talked to Aaron a lot about coded language and everything, um, and I think that both of our brains kind of overly analyze it, um, which is why I'm so happy that with my over analytical brain, it really caught me off guard i'm really glad that that twist caught me off guard because sometimes i do predict things like watching a hallmark movie is just like literally one of the most predictable things to me in fact like i play a game with my mom my mom who loves them and i'm just i just predict the plot in front Mm -hmm. of her and (laughs) it's great i Um, can't watch hallmark movies for that reason they're they're great they're so stupidly the same and so i was talking and so maybe it's because of like our analytical like brains that we try not to predict things, but I'm glad that I didn't predict that. I think it's because maybe they have so many twists that are predictable. Like you can kind of see that the Nazi character is kind of dumb and a pawn. Um, and so when Joe Walker kind of flips on him, you're like, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Why would the deadliest man alive be working with possibly the dumbest well, man alive? They, they introduced Dr. Baron von Nazi talking to a puppet and that might even just be a subtle nod to him being a puppet himself yeah probably i mean definitely but it's comedic but it's also like yuck 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 see look he's using a puppet and even though he's really the puppet yeah but 
it, that was something that you kind of get. And then, of course, like, you know, watching a lot of spy movies, we know, like, someone if someone is, you know, dead, they're probably not dead. No. So, you know, so Owen not being dead was another twist. I don't think anybody could have predicted Joe Walker's Owen. You kind of have to look pretty no. to it. If anything, I would have predicted that Owen would still be alive, but he would have been... Like one of his own characters that Joey Richter had already played. Yeah, or he would have been like some unseen character who was facilitating Dr. Baron von Nazi's scheme. I, yeah. I did not, but him being the deadliest man alive, that did not come up in my mind as a possibility. Yeah. So I even though they, they literally that. have parallel, um, they have parallel torture scenes because he tortures him in the in the right when you meet him, he's yeah. torturing literally he's torturing Kurt, Kurt under in disguise. Um, as a as a Russian, and then in at the end of Act One, he's torturing Kurt also in disguise, but as the deadliest man alive, which is actually him. And I think that, that I mean that's really that's so interesting. It's really fun. like go watch this show like again after you've seen all the twists, and it's just like it adds another like layer. Um, and I'm so glad that Star Kid um, is able to kind of like do that, and they're so smart with their writing. Um, we should mention that I don't have the writers in this Google Doc sheet, um, but I think the people who wrote it were Brian Rosenthal, who was in the show, um, and then also Joey Richter, who was an actor and played Owen, and then uh, there was one other person, um, and I don't remember the name, and I think Aaron's going to look it up right now. <laughs> um, but I have literally like all the all the people who who play everything in front of me, um, but I guess I didn't get the writers by accident. And the director is Corey uh, Lubowich, Corey Lubowich, um, who I think is a longtime friend of theirs and has done a few Starkid productions as well. Yeah, uh, Corey Lubowich, Joey Richter, and Brian Rosenthal, and features music and lyrics by Clark Baxtresser and Pierce Siebers. Oh, Clark. I love you, Clark. Again, sorry if any of us butcher your names. Yeah. <laughs> Clark has been with Starkid for a really long time. He's been their music producer for a very long time. He is like he does a good job. He does. He does a really good job. He's a really good. He's really good at um, orchestrating. I think and doing all of that stuff because I know nothing about instruments. Um, I know how to play the ukulele. I know how to play two chords on the ukulele. That's I about wish, it. <laughs> I wish I knew how to play anything. Um, so, do you want to say anything? I want to. I want to go through this show just a little bit more because I just like I. Before we talk about, like, the Nazis, because after the Nazis, we're just going to talk a little bit about the production. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about um, Lauren Lopez, um, yes. who is, in fact, the love of my life. I, like, don't know how to put it any better. She's truly such a great actress with so with so much range. Um, in a very Potter musical, she literally plays Draco Malfoy, and it's great. Um, and so in she plays Draco. <laughs> so in this, she plays Cynthia Houston... And then she plays Kurt's mom, which is interesting because she basically plays both of Kurt's mother figures. And she's really funny as Cynthia, who's basically like a hard ass and like is a parody of like, you know, someone who's like always testing you and like constantly flipping someone off. Yeah. And it's it's so funny. Like she's just so good at playing like an angry like woman, like fed up. Um, And then she plays his mom. Where she like basically is like an overconcerned mom who doting, going, when yeah, are you who getting is, like, married? At, who's at like one of his safe houses or something? And it's also like that she does a lot of spy stuff for Kurt. So she and like, his laundry. To, yeah, she well she knows how to forge passports. 
and she also knows how to clean guns. Mm-hmm. There's like a little bit of a backstory there that I really like that they give Kurt's mom with Lauren, and that's done really well. Then Brian Rosenthal, oh, we're going to talk about him last because he plays the Nazi. Um, uh, and then Tatiana, who is Mary-Kate Wiles, but she plays Tatiana, who is the Russian spy, um, and she also gets to sing the first song of the show, which is really good. quite the earworm. Um, very good. It's like, it's such a good song. It, it's classic old spy intro yeah, song. It's so good. I, like think Skyfall, but theater production. Yeah. And then it like comes back in other like ways. Yeah. And I like it. I definitely like, I really wish, um, that I could understand music. There's a, there's a video that I was watching last night of a guy breaking down Whitney Houston's, the national anthem that Whitney Houston oh, did yeah. that was really popular. Um, but it talks about like the background, like the band and the piano chords. Um, mm-hmm. Like he changed, she changed, not her, but the person who arranged it. Oh, for, is that Charles anthem. Cornell's video? Probably. I love is that the guy who who makes music things out of vines. Yes, yes, that's or, Charles Cornell. Car- basically, I love only Cardi B. He's he's so talented, and the way that he explains the music, I have I have no idea what he's saying, but he's so passionate about it that I immediately love it and everything that he says. Yeah. So I wish I could like go through the this musical with like a fine tooth comb and like understand some of the musical nuances. I know that another person who I want to have on the show, and because we're going to talk about Starkid musicals because they're free and I'm going to promote them forever, um, is is more like a musical person and she's very like into like the music and she loves like you know talking about like Dave Malloy and and is just very um, intellectual with with music which I am not so I think I'm excited to talk to her about Star Kid the way that Star Kid uses motifs mm-hmm. and character songs and and instruments and whatnot I think one of the biggest things you can generally feel to make a song feel like it's a spy song is to frankly give it a jazz vibe take take yeah. notes from jazz yeah and also like there are a lot of horns yes horns dramatic horns and dramatic yes. string instruments also i'd love if if i knew more about music i'm sure there's probably a lot of the songs tend to have a lower tempo they they're not high tempo songs they're more like yeah you and i you and i don't want to be music intellectuals because we would talk for so long about there's just so much music there's just so much tech Char- stuff what that- is his name charles Girl, I don't even want to. Say, I don't even want to say his name because it might be wrong. But um, he literally like goes off for eighteen minutes about the national anthem, which is like a minute and a yeah, half. Yeah, it's Charles so, Cornell. I follow him yeah. on YouTube. He's great. Go follow. Oh him. yeah, I also followed him on. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to talk about him then after the podcast. Um, but we'll put his. We'll put his YouTube channel also in the show notes, which I have not done for like four episodes. But yeah. it's because it takes. It's so long. It takes so long. <laughs> it just takes. It's a long process. But um, one of the character one of the new people who i haven't seen around is al uh, al phallic who plays the informant and plays susan susan is cynthia's assistant lauren lopez's assistant um Mm -hmm. and i will i will say that the small ensemble works really well for a lot of things but i thought that because al's characters of the informant and susan were so similar because they're both spies and they're both like a little bit emasculated during the show. They were very similar to me. And at, like, I thought Susan, he was Susan for three fourths of the show and he wasn't, he was the informant. Because he basically, his job is kind of to play every other spy at the thing. 
at the spy agency is based mm-hmm. his role is he plays Susan, who is a spy, who is Cynthia's assistant with a with a girl name, and that's like the comedy oh. of it. Um, and then the informant who is who goes into a lot of disguises and at one point dresses like a woman as a disguise and is and talks to Kurt and is Kurt's confidant. Um, so when spoiler alert, he kills the informant who never has a name but is Kurt's one of Kurt's like biggest contacts and friends. I thought it was Susan who died. So then I saw Susan in the next scene, like at the ending, and I'm like, but I thought Susan died. And so that was just a little bit confusing for me. I think that maybe could have been portrayed better if the actor who played the informant and Susan would have had more visual cues that they were different. Yeah, that is especially in the face. They do really well. Joey Richter, who plays a ton of different characters, really changes. Like they really gave him a different costume and like accent. Like he has like four different accents. The costume designer is Allison Dillard. Yay, she did a great job. Especially, I love Joe Walker's like. Is it a turtle, like the turtleneck combination with the gun halters, holsters? I love that. That was, that's, that's really great. Um, all of Tatiana's outfits are really good. Um, and And she also had like a color motif. Tatiana always had purple. Right. And then the last person who I want to talk to, some people only played one person, like Tessa, um, who played basically ensemble and then Barbara. Um, and Barbara is the nerd, um, who is secretly in love with Kurt. Um, and I actually did think in the beginning, I was like, this is the subversion that they're playing after he rejects Mary-Kate is I was like, oh, so like Barbara and Kurt are going to get together. This is how it's going to end. That's the subversion. I guess that's maybe why I was so like blind to like the fact that he was probably definitely at least bisexual. Uh, so the person who plays Barbara is Tessa Netting. Um, and if anybody knows who Tessa Netting is, I know Aaron doesn't know who Tessa Netting is, but I am apparently very into the internet, as people have told me, which I don't think I am, but um, I, like, know, like, a lot about, like, I was on YouTube for a really long time, um, and if you were on YouTube when, like, Potter, like, I don't know, like, in 2012 or whatever, Tessa Netting did a parody of a Book of Mormon song called Hello, but it was with Harry Potter characters. Um mm-hmm. And through her YouTube channel, she literally expressed how much she enjoys StarKid shows and how much she loves them. She And she is literally, and now she's in a show. She's in a show with the Tin Can Brothers with some Star Kids, And it's like, literally, she's literally living the dream right now. And she's also getting, she's also engaged. I don't know if she's married. I don't even know if they're broken up. I just saw this on a whim. But she's, um, I saw that she was engaged to Joe Moses, who plays Snape in A Very Power Musical, which is interesting. But I think it's really cool how she loves Star Kids so much, and then she got to be in it. It's kind of like when they got Ivana Ivana Lynch, who plays the original Luna Lovegood, to be in a very Potter musical senior year as Luna, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, well, because she, she is American, like she is American. She wrote a letter to. Do you know how she got casted for Harry Potter? Yes, I did. We're talking about Harry Potter now. Um, yes. But okay, on task. So Tessa did a really good job as Barbara. I really liked her energy. Her one acting choice where she does, like, this, like, weird, like, motorboat into the air is questionable. But other than that, she's a really lovable character, and her voice is is really strong. Um, I really like her a lot. It's not quite as heightened as the blonde woman from The Big Bang Theory. I'm sorry, I forget her name because I didn't watch The Big Bang Theory ever. But it's Howard's Howard's wife. It's a very similar vein. Blonde hair, glasses, kind of high voice. Yeah, and she jumps around a lot. 
she's she's a good she's a really good character and I really like her a lot. Um, and then let's last talk. We're gonna finally go into it. I think we've talked enough about the show. Let's have just a small conversation um, about Dr. Baron von Nazi, who is played by Brian Rosenthal, who I believe is Jewish. Um, and that's kind of the comedy of it, is that he's Jewish and he's literally playing a Nazi. Big hardcore Nazi. I think it's implied that Hitler is his uncle. Um, but he also has a little imaginary puppet Hitler that he sometimes talks to, which is like very Jojo Rabbit. Um, and this I show need to see out, Jojo Rabbit yet. Yeah, I think this show came out in like 2014, 13. Okay. I think I talked about when it came out. Um, the year will be in the YouTube video, but... Like, way before Jojo Rabbit, Jojo Rabbit just came out. Yeah. But it's really it's really interesting. And I don't know, when I see, like, Nazis being um, talked about, I always get, like, really nervous. Because I think it's really hard to talk about Nazis. Um, I think, um, I, I watched, a, see, this is, this is very me, but I didn't watch Jojo Rabbit. I only watched several video essays on it. And then I read the summary and I spoiled it. And I'm not going to spoil it here in this video, but I will say that really at no point does, like, anybody say, oh, the Nazis are bad. Like, it's mostly, like, it's mostly just, like, Nazis being Nazis. It's about this little naive boy who is, like, indoctrined into the society of Nazis because, like, they're required to, like, join, like, a small training camp or whatever when they were 10, which is, I think that's, I think that's true, like, that would probably like, been Germans. that probably would have been part of the Hitler Youth program. That is, it's exactly what it is. It's yeah. a Hitler Youth program. Um, and he is kind of like he's like a shy little kid, and it's basically following him. Um, and then he finds out, and this is not a spoiler, that there's a Jewish girl hiding in his attic. Um, and hey, whatever ensues. Um, but no, in nowhere in the movie do like I guess the the Jewish girl does call out the hypocrisy of the Nazis and everything, but, like, in no in no point do they really, like, outright state, like, this is bad. Like, don't be a Nazi. <laughs> like, don't do it. Where in this show, like, von Nazi is called out, like, a lot, and he's an idiot, and it's very similar to how the producers do it, which I'm sure is they took so many cute, like, they even had, like, a little callback to, um, I know that when the producers did the little Nazi symbol, what they do in a circle, that's a callback to actual propaganda um, yes. that Nazis used. But also, I think that the when they did it in Spies Are Forever, they were calling back to the producers, which I'm... Oh, definitely. It's the only thing, that's the only place that I would even trust to maybe, like, look at doing Nazi stuff mm -hmm. in a story, which I would honestly never do. I think it's a it's a conversation that Mel Brooks kind of had with himself back then but kind of doing it now was a little bit difficult because there are literal not there was a Nazi rally in like Charlotte like there are still literal like Nazis running around and so it's just a little um I don't know it's 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 I think it is a case-to-case -case basis I really do think it's a case, -to -case it, basis. you have to do it really well yeah to make sure that your stance is evidently you are not supporting their beliefs. So you have to either make it really satirical or somehow make them look like disreputable, discreditable characters. Yeah, I fully I fully agree with that. But kind of the way that um, I think it works is, is it, it was written, like with Mel Brooks, it was written because 
Um, he served in World War II. Yeah, but all, and and also, uh, it's just like as a Jewish, some people, some Jewish people feel a catharsis seeing yes. being uh, satirized. Some do not feel that catharsis. So before we, you know, we're not going to dive into this conversation too heavily because neither of us are Jewish. Yeah, and I'm basically parroting a, a video that we both watched that is probably done and is researched a lot better by Lindsay but this is this is a kind of a conversation into representation um, that I want to talk about in a later podcast at this point I'm doing like three in the heights podcast so get ready for that because it's a lot but um where we talk about how in the heights was such was a was a better representation I would think but I'm Asian so but as an Asian American who has dealt with shows like Miss Saigon and Flower Drum Song what kind of representation is like good represent good representation and whether that story is is worth telling depending on who it was written by the producers and the show were both written by a, had a Jewish person in mind and was written by I pretty sure Brian Rosenthal is Jewish written by Jewish people whereas the you know West Side Story was written by no offense but to Stephen Sondheim lovers I love him too but was written by Stephen Sondheim at the time who like literally wrote gibberish as Spanish because nobody knew nobody on the team knew Spanish he wrote gibberish as Spanish and then had Lin-Manuel Miranda as like a peace offering come back when they did the revival of it not the newest revival but like a revival in like 2009 or something to rewrite the Spanish lyrics to be accurate you know instead of gibberish which is what it was. You can't um, see it, but I'm cringing. Yeah, they put Natalie Wood in brown face when she played Maria in the movie. There's all kinds of yikes mm-hmm. story. Um, as you know, as I do think the music is is not like I don't think it's Sondheim's worst, but it's you know it's a big it's a big conversation. I've had one of my friends who I want to have on the In the Heights podcast um, likes West Side Story, and she is uh, Latina. And I would like to talk to her about that. I think it's a really important conversation that like we talk about the nuances and representation because like I blatantly do not like any musical that like Miss Saigon, which talks, which is basically Madame Butterfly, but in Vietnam, the story of a basically like a Jap, Madame Butterfly is about uh, an Asian woman, an American soldier comes over from war, marries her, it's the whole exotic fetish, gets her pregnant. Actually, I don't know if he gets her pregnant in Madame Butterfly, but at some point he dies, and then she chooses to die with him. Or like that whole scene with, is it Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's? Why even have that character? Well, yeah, I mean, that was, that's... Like, what's even the... Slightly different, because nobody is is defending that. No. Like, you can't defend that. But you can defend West Side Story, like, maybe a little bit, and you can defend Miss Saigon a little bit, because it has the representation. Mm -hmm. You can argue, like you know, it's a really good conversation to have. Like, why would you be Vietnamese and be willing to put yourself in a situation that is just so stereotypical and just like, it's so bad, like how they talk about the women in Miss Saigon and the only roles that are there in that show for Vietnamese people are soldiers, hookers, and, um, or soldiers, strippers, and sex workers. And that's it. Like, there's nothing else. And then Mm -hmm. the main character, who is a delicate flower, who gets saved by the American, who then, basically the difference between that and Madame Butterfly, sorry, I'm going to spoil Miss Saigon, is the fact that he he goes back over to America, finds a wife, and then goes back over to Saigon to find the girl that he fell in love with and finds out that she has a child, his child, 
um, and she begs him to take him back with him because the war is still going on. The don't even remember the character. I hate the I hate the show so much. But the who was Leah Salonga at the time at sixteen um, begs um, the American soldier who she fell in love with to take him back, and he goes, "No, no, he belongs here with you." And it's also because the wife doesn't like her clearly, and so what she does is she shoots herself, and he is basically forced to take the boy back with him to America and raise him. Um, because he, he doesn't have a mom anymore. Um, anyway, it's garbage, um, and I hate it so much. Um, but we're kind of like, Asians kind of have yet to have that story. I know, like, I know a lot of Asian-American theater writers, so like Timothy Wong has a really good one called American Morning that had a workshop. I've mentioned him a lot. And, you know, those questions of representation come in when we're talking about spies are forever. And, you know, it, it, there is a difference if somebody is writing a Nazi is Jewish or not. There is, there's a difference. Um, or is a marginalized person, someone else that was marginalized by the atrocities that went on during the Holocaust, you know? It does make me wonder, though, why, like, what, what contribution to the plot does spies are forever have by including a nazi character well that's true that's very similar to the producers of like why did he need to be a nazi offensive is offensive and i guess everyone thought yeah. the most offensive thing is a nazi but i mean the thing that actually i think spies are forever does better that the producers doesn't do is the producers also sat aaron has seen the producers aaron you've seen the producers yes i have is that they also satirize gay people Mm-hmm. Like extremely, they really satirize gay people in the producers. Where in this show, they don't satirize gay people. It's a, it's a character. It's a part of Kurt's character that he loved this man who he played a hand in with his arrogance of dying. Um, and I think that that's very different than kind of what the producers does because the producers like really satirize gay people to an almost uncomfortable level. Like. Yeah. There's uh, literally the, part, like the whole point of the fact that the re- the reason that that springtime for Hitler succeeds is because the guy who's playing Hitler acts super effeminate. Right. No, no, no. Is he gets he gets hurt and then he co- the gay guy um, who is the director comes in as the understudy. Yeah, acts effeminate like Hitler like as Hitler and then the audience starts laughing and it becomes like a com- comedic thing. But like the joke is not now like Hitler was a bad person and is dumb, the joke is Hitler was gay. Which yeah, is, a little bit. Is a little yikes, um, if I'm being honest. Well, as as the video essay that you will show and include... <laughs> and people will watch all 40 minutes of, because I know there, you can stand in as, this as podcast, says, so why not spend another 40? As she 40. says, comedy is one of the first things to age, and one of the things to most likely age poorly. Yeah. And of all of the Mel Brooks films that he's worked on, I would say probably most of his bits that take jabs at the LGBT community are probably one of the ones that definitely would not hit anymore. Yeah. I mean, I also have a, I also have a, I also have a really good, I have a question about like blazing, like I don't know anything about blazing saddles at all. All I know. Oh, I've watched it. Okay. All I know is that it's about um, black people in the Midwest and the N word gets said a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a little weird because Mel Brooks is not black. I don't really know who wrote that whole thing. Um, it's just Richard like, Pryor did a lot of work with that. Okay, it's just really it just kind of it's it's different. Like I would not feel comfortable writing 
a, a satirical piece about Hitler, even though I'm Asian, even though I'm still like a marginalized group. And because I'm queer and Hitler persecuted people who were queer as well as people who were Jewish. And it's like, I still would, I, I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel good about satirizing Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, in the same way, it's just, it's a little, it's a little weird with like Mel Brooks and Blazing Saddles, but I definitely don't know about, I shouldn't be talking about it because I don't know enough to say about it. What I know about Blazing Saddles is... Rubbed me the wrong way. Blazing Saddles was written with Brooke and Richard Pryor, who was a very, very well-known comedian in the 70s and 80s, who mm-hmm. used a lot of ra- racial racial circumstances for his humor and part of that was he used the n-word a lot he even on several occasions were was on some old snl skits where there was at least one character there was at least one skit i were i recall seeing where richard pryor was a character and chevy chase was a character and chevy chase called him the n-word and richard pryor called him a honky and it escalated to even more slurs and by the time Chevy Chase got to the N-word, Richard Pryor said, dead honk. And there's 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 a level of humor that I, I know that a lot of people, especially people who come from communities and groups, racial groups, ethnic groups that have slurs used against them, there are people in the community that are for reclaiming that slur in their own yeah, name, yeah, and yeah. then some who aren't. And I yeah. think in the case of having Richard Pryor writing for Blazing Saddles, Richard Pryor was one of those people that wanted to reclaim that word and didn't want to give it that, ooh, the big bad white man's going to use it against us. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there were, I'm sure there, I'm sure there were there, but with the sketch that you're talking about, like the whole point, like that nowadays, like that skit wouldn't work is because like now I think we all collectively agree that the n-word is very different from calling a white person like a cracker or a honky yeah they're very different things like like me calling like you a cracker is not gonna like (laughs) force upon systemic racism onto you no frankly if someone were to call me cracker i'd laugh yeah i mean it's just like not because there's no weight to it there isn't any weight to it like a piece of food (laughs) yeah so bringing it all back to this conversation um about like Nazism and, and representation. It's just a very complicated conversation. I think it's very case-to-case basis. Yes, um, it is. This musical was successful with it. Um, and I actually don't think that it'll date it um, as as much as I think the producers is dated. Um, I don't think this musical is gonna be dated because I think that they establish who is being sat- satirized and who gets like a, an emotional Mm-hmm. beautiful arc which is the storyline with Kurt and Owen which I think is like kind of like a re- I think it's really well written and like the fact that no one has done it ever because like Hollywood just doesn't like showing gay characters or like giving you know MI or giving um 007 a boyfriend at least not in the original Bond series because the Hayes Act was still something that occurred into the 60s yeah, let's talk and, about what that is, because we haven't talked about that yet. The Hayes, uh, Aaron, do you want to talk about the Hayes Act? Uh, the Hayes Code was kind of an informal standard that I don't know it fully. I'm actually looking it up right now. Oh, okay. So the Hayes Code was for movies which barred, quote-unquote, immoral things. Yeah. Time. And it ruled over Hollywood for, like, three decades. Um, and it basically barred homosexual relationships 
um, and it also barred like interracial relationships. Um, and I was watching an Asian representation thing the other day, and that is actually why a lot of roles got yellow-faced mm -hmm. in Hollywood, is because if one role was yellow-faced, the other role had to be yellow-faced because they couldn't cast a white person and an Asian person play two Asian people. They had to cast people in the same race. So even the makeup didn't matter. Not that that was a good thing in the first place, but it, so it would be like a white person in yellow-face and a white person in yellow-face, mm -hmm. Asian people. But yeah, so that's that's basically um, yeah. Look up the Hayes Code. Some of these are the pretty time. interesting to look at. Yeah, yeah. Which is also why Star Trek was revolutionary because it showed the first interracial kiss. Mm -hmm. I remember. I remember reading something about that. Mm -hmm. And so any so anyway, so that's you know read up on that when you're done. Let's talk a little bit about. I know it's a little skewed this time because I really love talking about Star Kid um, and everything that they do. Um, but let's talk about like some of the set. I actually don't know the, the names in regard to like other shows. Like I haven't really looked at the names in other shows. So as me and other friends um, start watching Star Kid Productions and Tin Can Brother Productions, maybe we'll start seeing some overlap. Um, but the sets were done by Emmy, Emmy Weldon. Um, and then the lighting design was Julian and Julian V. S. S. Staub. Um, L-Stop? L-Stop, L-Stop. Uh, and then the sound design was done by Matt Glenn and Mark Caspery. And the stage manager was Rita Santos. Always thank your stage managers. And I I really appreciated the set design. I thought, I mean, I thought it was a little simple, but like... I thought it was versatile, though. That, well, that's, yeah. I mean, the more simple it is, the more versatile it is. Mm -hmm. So Hamilton, where Hamilton's set is very muted, um, I would say that, like, they kind of have to, kind of have to do that. I kind of wish they had like a few more like surprises, like little hidden like compartments, kind of like they did with the yeah. railing in the beginning when they push the railing um, and Kurt drops the, it's literally a banana. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, Owen slips on it. I like how the thing like comes off and then comes back on. Like I like the little stage magic, magic that happens there. But yeah, because there are so many locations, it had to be like a pretty simple set, but like it's very rustic. The whole mood of the set is very like dark and dingy and um i liked that i kind of wish that there was like a little bit of play with like the ritziness of being a spy so like when they were like in the hotel and in the casino it was like a little like ritzier but i mean i don't even know what their budget is i'm sure it's not large and i think they did a really good job for the space that they were in and all of that i'm used to seeing broadway shows and whenever i set design i assume i have like an eight figure budget so I'm not the correct person to be judging anybody for their minimal set choices. Erin, what did you think? Um, I liked the set. I, like I said, I liked the versatility of it. I thought that, you know, I think in some shows, the set winds up having more influence on the actions of the show itself. And then other sets kind of just let themselves set back so that it focuses more on the actors. And I think in this set, it sort of recedes so that more of the focus is on the actual actions of the actors versus the set influencing their decisions because the set is there to, in some ways I feel like the set really is only an environment in maybe two or three significant scenes and then the rest it's sort of background just so that the actors have location to move around. Yeah, I think that the, that kind of set is, is... It has its moments where where it really is useful for how the set is for how the set is designed 
And then I think in other ways, the set allows itself to not take precedent so that the actors take precedent. Right, right. I really, I also really enjoyed, I think, the the lighting, um, because I think that there was a lot of mood lighting that had to be going on. There was particularly one part when, I mean, the big moment where Owen confronts Kurt. So they like figure out, Kurt figures out that Owen is alive and Owen reveals himself and he goes off on this big evil thing. And then Kurt has to follow him to a warehouse. Um, and there's a moment where they're confronting each other on stairs and like visually, even through the camera, it was so beautiful. It was so uh, like the the fact, the visual effects, and then the lighting, um, and like the the angles that they were standing at. It was just so good, and I think that that's a testament to um, the way that they filmed it because I think that they had people who knew them as actors and knew them as a production company who like knew how to film them, um, which I think is really important. It's really funny to watch shows that clearly were filmed for the first time by cameramen who had no idea what they were doing because they didn't know where to focus the camera but and and also like what you would see you know from a from a from maybe like a bootlegger if you're watching a bootlegged version of a show um you might see that where like the camera doesn't know where to focus and that's like why whenever people are like well like bootlegs like are taking money away from the industry and i'm like nobody wants to watch like a shaky cam bootleg yeah where two-thirds of the screen is obstructed because they have to hide (laughs) the camera yeah like it's like i think that that argument is not a great argument like i one of the bootlegs that i'm comfortable saying that i've watched um is amelie um and that show closed and the one that i watch is from la um and it's not great but i like Sometimes, like, there are a lot of things with Amelie is ensemble shots um, because it's such an ensemble-heavy show. Um, and they literally just follow Philippe Sue around, Philippe Sue around. Like, it's like whoever's singing, the camera goes, and it zooms on whoever's singing. And it's just... Oh, no, that takes the whole... Takes the whole... Take, the whole context of the set. Yes. Really, yeah. I think if it were possible, I would want all pro shoots to just be filmed like a one shot, like just like perfectly positioned mm-hmm. um, behind the audience and then just a straight like that. Like yeah. I don't need any zoom ins or anything because sometimes like like actors, like people are like, well, that actor looks like they're overreacting, but literally they're only reacting because they're only overreacting because that's what they need to do to project it to the other people. To the people that are 200 audience. feet away. Yeah, to the actual audience instead. Like they don't know how to work a camera. Like that's not their fault. So mm-hmm. I always find those complaints like completely out of touch. That makes me wonder how how they filmed Hamilton because I want that film. Oh yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be exciting. That's gonna be. I mean, it's, I will buy that now. Now in the Heights and Hamilton are literally are literally a year after each other. It's October mm-hmm. October two uh, twenty twenty and October twenty twenty one. So it's gonna be fun October for me. Or Lynn. Uh, I love Lin-Manuel Miranda and it's no <laughs> secret to anybody. Um, so do you want to go over anything else? I, I enjoy it. And especially because one of the primary reasons I did not get into a lot of theater when I was growing up was because it wasn't really accessible to me. Yeah. Whether true. through location where I lived or affordability or both. And for there to be companies that are willing to make online, sometimes even free shows for people to watch. I yeah. really appreciate that. So I yeah. just want to thank 
Tin Can Brothers and Star Kids for what they do because they're really allowing people to get introduced to theater who may not have the ability to do so otherwise. Yeah, and their productions are always free. It's basically just a matter of time. Yeah. Um, and I honestly, like, like, I wouldn't even blame them if they waited a year to introduce their stuff, but literally, I think Black Friday came out, like, four months after like it ended its run. Like it was not long. After. I saw I saw the I haven't seen Black Friday yet, but I've seen the YouTube video on it has been out for at least I think 2 months now. Yeah, it's been out for a while, but it also like the the in between time between them doing the show and then filming it and putting it online was not that long at all. Like you no. literally you have you have no reason to be bootlegging any Star Kid production. Mm-hmm. And like I mean like if you want like different versions of the actors like that makes a lot of sense but a lot of bootleggers do it to have mm-hmm. collections and it's just a little off you know I just one the, like one of the bootlegs that I really wish that they had made was in um the guy who didn't like musicals which would mm-hmm. be the <clears throat> weird in weird combination with Black Friday I don't know yeah. we'll talk about it maybe with another podcast you um, know I just thought of something you know how we were discussing coded behavior yeah what if that coded behavior was made because of stuff like the Hayes Code? That has to be one of no, the reasons. No, that's, ex- that's exactly why coded language was made. Yeah. They literally, um, the video that I'm going to put in the thing and that I was going to maybe watch with Aaron before this and then we didn't do because I, I feel so bad making Aaron watch like a 40-minute video. I don't want to make her watch another 20 minutes of video. Is she talks about how... The- I like long-form con- I like long form content. It's no big deal. <laughs> How the Hayes Code um, might have led led to a lot of Disney villains being queer coded, which is upsetting. Their gestures, they're they're, <laughs> they're gesturally extravagant. There are videos about there are many videos about Disney villains being queer coded. Yes. Um, like, well, everyone always jokes that char- like villains like Hades from Hercules is the sassy gay friend. Well, yeah, like Hercules. People talk about Scar- Ursula. Ursula was yeah, literally Scar- based Ursula. off of Divine. Yeah. 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 So there is definitely evidence that villains can be coded by yeah. queer culture. Yeah, well, to be to be evil, like by the Disney, by the Disney writers. Hades is voiced by James Woods, and James Woods is a bad person. James Woods is a bad person. Yes. Um, and also um, the villain in Pocahontas, not that that movie needs anything more. Ugh. But their, their villain is also very queer coded. Yeah, see how I glitter. I, and they literally, like... <laughs> In, the, in Beauty and the Beast, they literally made um, uh, LeFou gay. Yeah. And he's a, not only is he not even a villain, he's the sidekick villain. Yeah. There's just so much, like, there's so much to talk about in terms of, like, queer, the queer coding in Disney film. And I just want them to have a, a, a gay lead for once. That's, we deserve it. We deserve it. That's what everyone wanted from Frozen 2. Oh, man, what a good opportunity to just, like, throw in representation in one of the most popular films. Missed opportunities, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything Is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, I think I was talking about, about something and then I forgot about it, so. I think that's about it. Okay, so I think as Aaron wrapped up really nicely, uh, we totally recommend that you watch this musical. Mm-hmm. Literally, I will be putting, like, it's not even, like, the link to the tickets. I'll be putting the link to the literal show um, in the show notes. We want you to watch it. Please watch it. It's so good. Like and subscribe to all their comment or to all their content, rather. Um, 
and just like watch all their stuff, like go through it. Like that's literally because of them, I have content for a podcast um, because I'm just going to be going through a ton of their shows. Yeah. Um, with a bunch of friends. I almost want to watch um, Trail to Oregon with Ross. Oh, um, so good. Yeah. I'm trying to do shows that like people haven't seen or maybe people have seen and are very familiar with. So I, th- I think that's it. Um, be ready for a lot more Starkid content. Yeah. That's what y'all are getting. Um, and I'm also, also, thank you, Aaron, for downloading Audacity, because that's, because we're doing this over, a, a, basically, a Skype conversation. Um, it's no trouble. Audacity is a very easy to download program. It is very easy to download. You heard it, you heard it from Aaron. So if you want to be a guest on the podcast and you're bored during quarantine, <laughs> please let me know. You can be on the podcast. <laughs> I literally am begging people to get on this podcast. I didn't think I would have to do that. But thank you for being on this podcast. I'll see everybody later. Hopefully I can be pretty regular with these podcasts because I'm at home um, and not doing work. Um, In case you haven't heard, Broadway shut down. So my job is basically moot. Um, I'm also, fun fact, starting a YouTube channel, which no one is ever going to know. It's not going to be connected to me personally. Um, But if you find a video essay out there who's doing Broadway, it may be me. And I know the first video it will be. (laughs) And Aaron knows what it's going to be. But So thank you for being on this podcast, and we'll see you all uh, in in two weeks, I guess. Hopefully. Uh, But, oh. True, hopefully. Um, I said that last time and then took a break for a month. So thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in two weeks, hopefully. Bye. Bye.